And if you would, take your Bibles and open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24. And I'm actually going to mention a couple of passages to you this morning. It's not my MO to do that, but we're going to do it this morning. Because Jesus offers an explanation directly of this passage in Deuteronomy 24. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy 24 for some time initially, and then we will turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. So we'll start in Deuteronomy 24, and then we'll go over to Matthew 19. So what I'd like for you to do is open up to Matthew 19, put a bookmark or something there, but we're going to begin our time together in Deuteronomy 24. So Deuteronomy 24, and we are going to read together verses 1 through 4. And because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand ready to hear from God who still speaks in his word. Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 1, Moses writes as he's carried along by the Spirit of God. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. One of the greatest blessings in my life is being the husband to my beloved bride, who is at this point helping in G-Force. So what I say, she cannot correct in this room <laughs> at this moment. She can correct later. There are witnesses indeed. We are currently in our 19th year of marriage and our relationship is a consistent testimony to the grace and kindness of God to me. I hope it is to her, but it is certainly the case with me. But marriage, even a marriage in which Christ is central and Christ has been central in our marriage from the beginning, Even this kind of a marriage is not an easy relationship. It's just not. I remember hearing sermons and reading marriage books as I was preparing for marriage that appeared to intimate that if you both love Jesus, everything will just be wonderful. All of the time. And I got married and found out that was indeed false. Marriage is a challenge. 
Why? Because, as one author has put it, one sinner marries another sinner, and if the Lord permits, have baby sinners. That's a description of marriage. So it comes with great difficulty. It comes with commitment. It comes with even a kind of daily death, doesn't it? Daily death to self. And this should not surprise us because marriage is a lot like the Christian life. As Jesus describes in Luke chapter 9 in which the Christian life is characterized by a denial of self and taking up one's cross daily. One author compares marriage to remodeling a house. I've remodeled a house, and I think the image fits. He writes these words. It takes longer than you planned. It costs more than you figured. It is messier than you anticipated. It requires greater determination than you expected. Sometimes the only thing that keeps us going is hope. That's marriage. Even Christian marriage. Even faithful marriage in Christ, this side of resurrection. So marriage, one of the greatest blessings in this life One of the greatest blessings this side of resurrection is indeed a challenging relationship and we are doing no one a service as a church when we act as if it isn't. It's tough. And perhaps, perhaps this is why since the fall of humanity into sin, divorce has plagued the sacred institution. Since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3, Separation, divorce, and the need to remarry at times has plagued the sacred covenant of marriage. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time talking about the topic of marriage in a small portion of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, where the challenges of marriage are simply assumed. They're assumed in this text. In fact, rather than offering instruction regarding marriage directly, this text offers instruction to Israel as they're about to enter the land of Canaan regarding divorce and remarriage. If you're taking notes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack marriage, divorce, and remarriage in three stages. First of all, we will look together at what I'm calling God's concession. God's concession in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one through four. We could call it God's permission, but I just prefer the word concession for a couple of reasons. I'm not gonna mention those reasons right now. God's concession. Second, after considering God's concession concerning marriage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one through four, we will spend a moment in a complimentary text, in an explanatory text, in relationship to Deuteronomy 24. And that is the text, Matthew 19, verses three through 12. We won't be there long, but we will turn to Matthew 19, verses three through 12 to see how Jesus complements and explains Deuteronomy chapter 24. And we're gonna call this God's design for marriage. God's design. So first, God's concession regarding marriage. Secondly, God's design regarding marriage. And then finally, after unpacking God's concession, 
and God's design, we will close our time with a few concluding reflections because this topic is so very complex. And everybody in the room has a different approach in the sense of experience, I should say, a different experience with these kinds of relationships. So we're going to offer some broad concluding reflections that I think grow out of these texts, Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 19, as we seek to follow Jesus Christ until he returns. Well, let's begin by looking together at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 3, which fascinating enough, just seems to describe a situation. So Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 3, I know we read it a moment ago. I'm going to read these first few verses again. Notice verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her. This is the occasion. There's marriage. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Now, again, this is all description. Verse 2. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if that latter man dies, who took her to be his wife. Now, stop there. That's all just kind of the occasion So throughout this text in Deuteronomy, we find, again, what I'm calling, this first point, God's concession regarding marriage. And this text begins by describing a complex situation, doesn't it? Notice that the situation begins with a marriage between a man and a woman, but it doesn't stop there. That would be simple enough. A man takes a woman to be his wife, and then instruction is given, but that's not the case. In the marriage, Moses describes The man is displeased with his wife because as the spirit of God leads Moses to write, the man finds some indecency in her. Now to what does this description, some indecency, refer? This is difficult to ascertain. In fact, we won't make, we won't quote them necessarily, but there are scores of rabbis that debated precisely what was intended by this phrase, some indecency. The only other time this phrase is used is back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 14, to describe what appears to be human excrement. That doesn't help us a whole lot. I don't think. It's possible that in our text, that is in Deuteronomy 24, this phrase refers to some sexual sin. In fact, some people argue that it, that it does. Some argue that it refers to adultery. But the problem with that is God has been very clear in Deuteronomy regarding the person who commits adultery. What is to happen to that person? They're to be stoned. So it seems odd that God would be instructing here concerning adultery that takes place in A marriage. Perhaps possible, but odd. Difficult in relationship to other scriptures. Now keep in mind, I want you to do something with me. Keep in mind that what Deuteronomy is doing is describing more than it is prescribing at this point. That's very, very important. 
It will help us as we work through these things. And there will be more on this in just a bit. So whatever the case, whatever the case, whatever some decency is, and I know, you know, uh, you expect the pastor to stand up at times and tell you precisely what the word of God means. However, I must admit to you, I think there's some ambiguity in the phrase. Why? Because God is not commanding divorce here. He's describing what in fact does happen. What are some of the reasons people get divorced? Well, how long do you have? And I think that is precisely the point. He finds some indecency. What indecency? Some. And it results in divorce. So whatever the case, the husband is displeased. He divorces his wife. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house. She departs. Next, in verse two, the divorced woman goes and she marries another husband. After all, she has a certificate of divorce. And what this would have done for her is it would have released her from the covenant obligations of marriage to her previous husband. Now she's free to remarry in the ancient Near Eastern context. And so she does just that. And again, more on this in just a bit. So she goes and she remarries and tragedy falls, strikes again. Either in the description we receive in Deuteronomy 24, either this new husband also is displeased and divorces his wife and gives her a certificate, sends her away, and she departs. Same phrases, same descriptions. Or he dies and she's left widowed. Now again, <clears throat> I want to ruminate for just a moment about the nature of this text because I think it's instructive for us as we interpret the Old Covenant in particular, as we interpret Deuteronomy, passages in Exodus, passages in Leviticus, passages in Numbers, and so forth. So it will serve us as we ruminate about the different kinds of laws or instructions we find in the Old Covenant. There are, I'm going to give you a couple different categories, and I want you to know something. These are woefully inadequate categories. And I'm going to give them to you. But just know it's not this simplistic always. But perhaps it will help you as you're working through the text of the Old Covenant. There are laws on the one hand that have, have the flavor of being highly occasional. That is to say, they're very specific. In fact, these laws are oftentimes characterized by if-then statements. A prodesis, if, and an apodesis, then. If this is the case, then do this. If this is the case, then do that. So these are very specific, highly occasional laws. And we find these throughout the Old Covenant. On the other hand, there are laws that have a more general and absolute feel to them. These are the kinds of laws that don't have a lot of if-then statements. These are the kinds of laws that begin with something like this. Do not. You shall not commit adultery. You see? That has an absolute flavor to it. No conditions. Not a specific context granted in the instruction. In fact, the grammar itself oftentimes will indicate this, the Hebrew grammar. I won't get into all of that, but just to mention it to you. So on the one hand, you have these specific laws. Sometimes they're referred to as case laws. 
Other times they refer to as, here's a word for you, casuistic laws. You use that word on a regular basis, don't you, when you're having coffee with one another? So these specific laws, and on the other hand, there are these absolute laws in the word that gets used because, look, scholars love to invent terms to make you think we're smarter. They're smarter than they actually are. That's what theologians do. And these are oftentimes referred to as apodictic laws. Whatever that means, right? Absolute. Authoritative. So you need to know that. Why? Because what I think we find in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, is a highly occasional and specific law. So many ways the Spirit of God nuances and qualifies the circumstance. I mean, the woman is married to a man, and then he finds some indecency in her. He divorces her, gives her a certificate, sends her away. She leaves. She remarries. The same process starts over again, or he dies. All of that before the instruction. That's just the occasion. Now, now we arrive at the specific instruction per se. And that's in verse four. So after all of this, this if, if this is the case, if this is the case, if this is the case, when this happens, then verse four, her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. By the way, in the Hebrew, that's the first instruction you get. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is a little bit different here. And if you have time for coffee sometime later, we can talk about the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But here, the Hebrew text doesn't give instruction until verse four. This man may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, we miss the point. We miss the point church family, if we focus on God's permission or concession, which is ironic, isn't it? Because I've called this God's concession. But we really do miss what is central to the text. God's description and his instruction actually serves to protect the vulnerable wife and potential children who in the ancient Near Eastern context would have been in an extremely precarious situation if a man just walked out on them. What happens to the woman who's married to a man <clears throat> whose livelihood, welfare, and the welfare of her children are dependent upon the man who works and labors to take care of the family, who is welcomed into the village and the tribe on account of his name. What happens to that woman if that man just disappears? Well, she's treated as still married, which means another man will not marry her. She has one of two options. Either she can go back to her father if he's still alive or starve. It's that simple. What you find embedded in this instruction in the Old Covenant is again, God is concerned about the vulnerable. God is concerned about protecting those who are in a vulnerable situation. In this case, the wife <clears throat> or the widow, even as the story goes on, and potential 
children. What this instruction does is it does not present to us the ideal. Deuteronomy rarely describes new heavens and earth. You don't read Deuteronomy 24 and think, you know what? That's how I want to be. Right? We don't, I don't use Deuteronomy 24 and model the vows when I officiate a wedding ceremony. Model the vows after Deuteronomy 24. That's not what I do. And you don't do that either. Why? Because what God is doing throughout the Old Covenant is he's, is he's condescending. He's coming down into the unideal messiness of life, plagued by sin. Sinners in a sinful world need his mercy, and in his kindness, he accommodates. Can I say that? He accommodates. But he accommodates in such a way that what he says still reflects his just, righteous character. So God is not here presenting his design. His design actually is assumed. And we'll see that in a moment in Matthew 19. Here he presents the unideal but realistic situation of a divorce in Israel's context. And God mercifully enters the unideal and grants a concession that protects the vulnerable wife, protects her in a couple of different ways and potential children. It protects her, of course, by granting her and assuming that it will be granted, namely a certificate of divorce so she can marry again. And also by keeping her from being able to be treated as someone the husband can just enter in and out of a relationship with at his will. One author writes these words. This text said that the man can't have his cake and eat it. I think this is accurate. The author continues, he can't abandon his wife and expect her to be waiting for him at a later date. I would add to this what appears to be inherent in the language of the text that the union that results from marriage is binding. Again, God's design is assumed in the text. It's a, it's a part of the warp and woof of the text, the foundation of the text. For that union to be broken and given to another is simply what the text states, an act of defilement and an abomination before the Lord. And this is why I think, by the way, the gospel authors will record Jesus as describing the man who divorces his wife as making, as it were, or causing his wife to commit adultery. There's something binding about marriage that we have to assume as followers of Jesus Christ and those who submit to the authority of Scripture. So to be clear, let me say this again. God does not condone divorce and remarriage in Deuteronomy 24. It's not what he's doing. And he certainly is not commanding divorce and remarriage as much as he is mercifully permitting and regulating it for the protection of the vulnerable and the restraint of sin. In addition to God's concession in Deuteronomy 24, 
What we find is God's design in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. So if you would, turn there. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And we'll try not to tarry long. But you know that means nothing when I say it, right? <clears throat> Matthew 19, 3 through 9 We will not talk about all the details of this text, but I want you to see how Jesus is interpreting. Deuteronomy 24. Look with me at verse three. Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus. So Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? How about that? For any cause. That's convenient. Notice that the question betrays a loose view of marriage and divorce, which by the way had become quite common in Jewish circles. A man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever at this time. He could divorce her for not preparing food to his liking, not pleasing him sexually or any other reason for that matter. Marriage for any cause. And this had become a standard Jewish interpretation. Now the Pharisees are interested in discussing divorce, right? That's their interest. But Jesus is interested in the more important issue, God's design in marriage. And doesn't he always do that? I mean, if you learn anything about the way Jesus interacts with us in the gospels, it's that we consistently ask the wrong question. And then he answers the right question and calls us out of the wrong question. That should be instructive for our prayers oftentimes. We bring our prayers to the Lord Jesus and we are fully prepared for him to redirect those requests. And so he does here. His concern is God's design in marriage. He responds, look at the text, verses four, five, and six. Have you not read (laughs) your Pharisees? I assume you've spent some time in the text. This wasn't offensive at all. (laughs) Pharisees, of course, being some of the leading religious leaders, theologians, exegetes of first century Judaism. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Verse five. And he said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse six, now Jesus, of course, explains, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore, God is joined together. Let not man separate. So what Jesus does is he takes the Pharisees back to Genesis chapters one and two. And specifically, Genesis 2.24, to show that two individuals, a man and a woman, through the institution of marriage and in the eyes of God, are now understood to be one entity, one flesh. Astounding. And I might add, counter our cultural assumptions concerning individualism. No, when you say, I do, you die. You give up the right to be 
fundamentally an individual. And you now embrace the union that God accomplishes in the institution of marriage. And this is taught, according to Jesus, in Genesis 2, 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice that Jesus describes this union as something God accomplishes. Did you see that? That's easily missed. Verse 6. Who is the one that actually does the unifying? What God, therefore, has joined together. You see that? You may think that you joined yourself to your spouse and your spouse joined herself or himself to you, but there is a deeper and more fundamental reality that through marriage, God himself is doing the work of unifying. So this is, of course, why Jesus supposes as something contrary to the act of God, one who tries to divide marriages. If God joins the two together, let no one separate. And this is precisely the reason he gives for not divorcing in verse six. So this is God's design. And jot this down if you're taking notes, because I think it's instructive for us as we continue to think about the covenant of marriage and the challenges of that covenant in a fallen world that oftentimes result in divorce and remarriage. Here's God's design. Marriage is a union accomplished by God between one man and one woman that lasts a lifetime. That's God's design. A union accomplished by God between one man and one woman that lasts a lifetime. This isn't all that is said in the text, but it's foundational to what is said in the text. In fact, Jesus redirects the entire conversation to this foundation. So anything we say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage must be consonant with and affirming of this design given to us by God regarding marriage. Now the Pharisees retort in verse 7. Look again at the text. Verse 7. Why then... Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants. Biblical scholar. Why then did Moses, notice the language, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now they've made a fatal mistake. Their fatal mistake fundamentally is challenging the author of scripture. (laughs) To what passage are they appealing? Deuteronomy 24, verses one through four. They said, Moses commanded to give a certificate of divorce. Jesus responds in verses eight and nine, look at the text. Matthew 19, because, notice he doesn't say because of their hardness of heart. You see that? Moses didn't write those words 
because of a generation long gone. He wrote those words as he was carried along by the Spirit of God because of your hardness of heart. Because this day, you needed to hear the rebuke of God. So it is today in the 21st century, brothers and sisters, for us, as we read Scripture. Because of your hardness of heart, Jesus says, Moses, what? Allowed. Not commanded. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Your starting place was to justify divorce. You need to go back to God's design. Verse nine, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and then he does add a qualifier, an exception, except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. Again, I think explaining Deuteronomy 24. Moses did not command divorce. He allowed it, according to Jesus. And we pointed that out earlier when we were in Deuteronomy 24, right? This was all the occasion. And that's how the Hebrew text reads. The instruction comes in verse four. You can't take her again to be your wife. That would be an abomination to the Lord. And this is, of course, why we did settle on God's concession, not God's command regarding divorce and remarriage in Deuteronomy 24. So divorce and remarriage are not a part of God's design. They exist because of the presence of sin among a sinful people who live in a sinful world. There are people in the room who know that better than others. People in this room who have felt the sting and the pain of a severed relationship that God designed to be permanent. Now, the purpose of this sermon is not to entangle all of the complexities of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I do want to say something about my own perspective as it relates to some of these passages on the validity or lack thereof regarding divorce and remarriage because you need to know this. You need to know this because I get the privilege of being your pastor and instructing you from God's word and hopefully leading you into the presence of God someday when Jesus Christ returns. While faithful followers of Christ and I mean faithful followers of Christ, interpret scripture as forbidding the Christian from ever divorcing, this is not how I understand God's word. Divorce and remarriage are contrary to God's design, but God mercifully condescends into the unideal. Mercifully. All the while maintaining his design Upholding his design, presenting his design, exhorting for his design, and empowering to his design. God's design is contrary to divorce, it's contrary to remarriage, but on account of the presence of sin, on account of brokenness, on account of things that are just beyond our control, I do believe that Christ mercifully permits, never commands, Never in scripture does God command divorce. But I do believe he permits or allows divorce in certain circumstances. One of those circumstances I take to be sexual infidelity in Matthew 19 verse 9, except for sexual immorality. And there are so many challenges in interpreting this text. We won't get into all those, but you need to know that. I think the traditional interpretation is indeed correct. 
that in the case of sexual infidelity, God allows, let me say it again, God allows divorce. Does not command it. I also think, to take another circumstance, that 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15 permits or allows divorce in the case of abandonment. That is when one spouse abandons the other spouse. And Paul uses the language of the unbelieving spouse abandoning. Which, by the way, if someone abandons their spouse and is unrepentant, and the church is doing what the church should do, that person will eventually be recognized as an unbeliever on account of their unrepentance. So I take it that abandonment is one example. I take it that sexual infidelity is another example. And these are examples or circumstances that permit divorce. And I take it that where the word of God permits divorce, it permits remarriage. So there you have it. There are people in this room, doubtless, who love the Lord, who completely disagree with that exegesis, and we can get a cup of coffee. And likely we will leave in disagreement, but unified in Christ. And that's okay. That's all right. Other examples, I should say this, there are other examples, circumstances, questions that need to be addressed that I think would deter us from focusing on what's before us. So if you have additional questions, feel free to reach out to Pastor Tim later. little levity for us at the expense of our brother. We have seen God's concession in Deuteronomy and God's design in Matthew 19. Let's wrap up with a few concluding reflections, can we? I'm gonna bring some of these things together. Restate some things and perhaps state some other things as we wrap up. And you can jot these down. I'm gonna give you around four of them, perhaps four exactly. First, first, God's design for marriage, again, is a union accomplished by God between one man and one woman that lasts a lifetime. Do not let go of that design. Don't compromise that design. That design is rooted in the authority of God revealed in Scripture. And anyone who compromises that definition of marriage is compromising the Word of God. And as we have seen in Matthew 19, I wouldn't encourage you to debate the author of Scripture concerning the meaning of Scripture. So this is God's design, a union accomplished by God between one man and one woman that lasts a lifetime. Secondly, and directly related to the first, but I want to state it again explicitly, divorce is the result of sin and therefore out of accord with God's design. If you've been divorced, you know that more than many in the room. Don't compromise that. Divorce is the result of sin, and therefore out of accord with God's design. By the way, this does not mean that divorce leaves everyone equally culpable or guilty. That's not what I'm suggesting, nor does it mean that divorce is necessarily the result of personal sin on the part of both parties. 
It's not what I'm suggesting. But it does mean that without sin in the world, there would be no divorce. It's really that simple. Without Genesis 3, there would be no severing of this relationship. Third, God mercifully permits divorce in certain cases on account of the sinfulness of humanity. Mercifully is an important qualifier there. God mercifully permits divorce in certain cases on account of the sinfulness of humanity. Notice that I'm not saying that God commands divorce. Never does God command divorce. We've said that over and over and over again. Reconciliation and restoration are consistently the desire we find in Scripture, but they are not always realistic. A day is coming when all things will be made new again, but that day has not yet arrived. And so we live in this tension between Christ's first coming, when things are being put back together, and Christ's second coming, when finally and fully all things will be made new. And that tension should inform us in our relationships, recognizing indeed that we ought to live in perfect harmony with one another, but that is not always the case. And we lean into God's grace when we are face to face with that reality. Fourth, and we'll conclude with this one. Fourth, perhaps more important than anything I've said, our fundamental need is not marriage. Our fundamental need is not marriage or any other merely human relationship. Our fundamental need is a relationship with God in which Christ rescues us, cleanses us, protects us, keeps us, and will never leave us. That's what you need today. That's what I need today. What this means is our fundamental need is to be joined to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So marriage then, that is a human marriage in which God accomplishes this union between one man and one woman that is intended to be a lifetime union, it points to a greater relationship. A relationship that God accomplished by means of the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised future return of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that relationship is between the living God through Christ, the groom, the husband, and the church, comprised of people who have been purchased by Christ, rescued by Christ, who are in a covenantal commitment with Christ in which Christ has said, I do, and I will. I will cleanse them. I will protect them. I will remain with them even to the end of the age. And I will come and take them again to myself. Dear friends, if you do not know that relationship, don't leave here today without entering into that relationship on account of the work of Christ through faith and repentance.
And if you have questions about that, you want to talk about that, you want to pray about that, perhaps you want to protest it and debate it. That's okay too. And meet us after service. We'll have a pastor standing just to the left of this room in a room called the Crossroads. And you'll see the title just above the room. There's a pastor in there who would just love to come alongside of you and for you to come alongside of him and us and find out what all this means. What does it mean to be married to Christ? What does it mean for marriage between a man and a woman to point to a greater reality, a reality that is eternal and a relationship that could never be severed because it is rooted and built upon God's fidelity, God's strength, and God's benevolence, not our own. No husband will ever fulfill you like you need to be fulfilled, sisters. If that's what you want out of marriage, you're asking too much from your husband. You're setting him up for failure. Men, no woman, no wife could ever fulfill you fundamentally in this way. If you're expecting that from your wife or someone who is now your girlfriend or someone in the future you've not met, you are asking too much of them. You were not created fundamentally to be married to a mere mortal, to a man, to a woman. You were created fundamentally to be married to Christ. If you're single this morning, I want to say this. Your need is not to find a man or a woman to fulfill you. You may choose to get married. You may choose to remain single. By the way, both are biblical options. Your fundamental need, the fundamental need you possess is to experience the love God has for you expressed in Jesus Christ. That love is sufficient and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. One hymn writer, we will let him close us. One hymn writer put it this way. The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. Listen, I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Let's pray together. Thank you, Christ, that we are yours. And you are ours forever. We pray that through the work of your spirit, whom you have sent, we would learn more and more day by day, week by week, month by month and year by year to rest and find fulfillment and satisfaction in the relationship that we could never forfeit and that nothing could jeopardize a relationship with you on account of your work for us. We pray these things.
with gratitude and love. If ever we have loved you, Jesus, our Jesus, tis now. In your name and for your sake we pray. And all God's people said,